You're listening to audio from Harvest Bible Chapel, Philadelphia, where we believe in preaching the authoritative power of God's Word each and every week. For more content and information about our church, visit harvestphiladelphia.org. So this morning, uh, we are going to be exploring a topic that has been explored at length throughout church history. We want to look at the depths of God's love for sinners. Countless books have been written about this subject. Endless sermons have been preached on it. Millions of songs have been sung, all seeking to unearth the mysteries of God's abundance and unconditional love for sinners. I'm reminded of the hymn that we sing here from time to time that simply says, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen could ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and it reaches to the lowest hell. This is a topic that simply cannot be exhausted. It's a topic that acts as medicine for the sin-sick soul. When we start to feel even the slightest bit of distance between us and our Father in heaven, this is the topic that we must return to again and again and remind ourselves of these amazing truths. It's an important subject to keep reminding ourselves of over and over and over again because it can simultaneously be difficult to grasp, but also easy to take for granted. It can be difficult to grasp, particularly if we have any sort of realistic understanding of our own sinfulness, right? Like, how could a perfectly holy and pure God love me, a vile sinner? It can also be hard to grasp because of the way that we interact with other sinners. Like, for me, if somebody sins against me, my default reaction is not usually love. It's frustration and anger. But it's not only difficult to comprehend, it's also, strangely enough, kind of easy to take for granted, especially if you've been following the Lord for any number of years, just because of the way that we talk about the Lord all the time. We say things like, hey, just remember, God loves you. We sing songs that say, Jesus loves me, this I know. For God so loved the world. How deep the Father's love for us. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. These are all wonderfully true and biblical sentiments, and yet have they become so familiar to us that we really are no longer awestruck at how amazing they really are. So this morning, my prayer is that we would all get a fresh glimpse of God's incredible love for us this morning. No matter where you are in your life, if you are feeling weary or worn out, I pray that you would be reminded of just how much God loves you today. So we're going to be in a text that's likely familiar to many of us. It's a parable that Jesus tells us. It's a parable that's most frequently referred to as the parable of the prodigal son, But this parable is not just about one son. There's another one in the picture, too, and it's just as much about him as it is the younger son. We're going to see that Jesus is not merely trying to encourage weary sinners. He's also trying to address Pharisees and give them the opportunity to respond to God's love, too. So there are two groups of people that our text addresses today. 
two groups of people on whom the Lord showers his abundant love upon. There's the selfish and the self-righteous. There's the prodigals and the proud. There's the wayward sinners and the obedient hypocrites. So as we look at our text, we're going to try to answer the question, how does the father respond to two very different sinners, both of whom are alienated from God, but under extremely different circumstances? But before we read the text for the morning, I just want to take a quick minute to kind of zoom out, and we'll just take a quick look at where we are in the book of Luke today. So throughout the book, Jesus is being presented as the Messiah and the one through whom God's kingdom is going to come. Jesus and his disciples then go on a long journey to Jerusalem, and they preach the gospel from town to town. The message that Jesus was preaching was radically different than what the people were used to hearing at the time. He was teaching them to rethink about the way that they thought about forgiveness and compassion and justice and generosity and mercy. So he was teaching something that they weren't used to hearing. But not only that, he was taking it to the outcasts of society. Jesus didn't just go to the religious leaders who were teaching in the synagogues and say, all right, guys, you guys are the ones that are teaching scripture. Here's what it all really means. Here's what it's all about. I need you guys to start teaching this now to the people. He goes to the prostitutes with this message. He goes to the tax collectors and sinners. He takes this message of love to the sick and the poor, the people that nobody else was talking to. Jesus was loving the marginalized with this message of love and forgiveness. And this really ruffles the feathers of Israel's religious leaders. They couldn't believe Jesus was interacting with sinners the way that he was. Because they had put all of their faith and trust in their own ability to keep God's law perfectly. So it was beyond offensive to them that a vile sinner could be welcomed into God's kingdom like that with no track record of obedience. And this is precisely why Jesus tells a lot of these parables, because he knows the Pharisees are mad. And so he wants to help them understand God's love too. He wasn't merely trying to rebuke them, although that was a part of it for sure. He was genuinely trying to teach them how they too could come to salvation in him. From, the God, from God's love that comes down from above. This new message of reconciliation to God opens up the kingdom to so many new people. It was no longer just for the religiously elite. Liars could be welcomed. Adulterers could be saved. Thieves could be forgiven. Drug addicts can repent and find salvation. Murderers can be pardoned. Worldly hip-hop artists can be saved. This dramatic shift in how people viewed God and salvation proved to be too much for the Pharisees, who were dead set on clinging to their own self-righteousness. So when we arrive here in Luke 15, we're going to find the tax collectors and sinners drawing near to Jesus because they loved this message. Finally, somebody was welcoming them to the table. But the Pharisees are there too. And they're not eager to hear the message. They stood there looking with eyes of condemnation upon Jesus and the sinners that he was talking to. So that's where we are. And with that, let us read Luke 15. I'm going to start in verse 1, and then I'll jump over to the parable that we're going to be in. 15.1 in the book of Luke, 
Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Again, they loved this message that he was, he was preaching. But the Pharisees and scribes, they grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus then responds by telling a couple of parables. He tells the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. And then uh, in verse 11, he starts the parable of the prodigal son. Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, so treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never even gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. When this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him? He said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost his family. This is the word of Let's pray. Father, we just come before you now uh, seeking greater understanding. Uh, As we study this parable, Lord, give us eyes to see uh, what you would have for us. As we consider your love, may our hearts and our minds and our souls be awakened afresh. The incredible realities of how deep your love is for sinners like me. We thank you, Lord, and we love you so much, all because you loved us first. It's in the name of your son that we pray, and all God's people said, amen. A couple of weeks ago, I was at a concert uh, with Aaron Ullman. Um, I don't think he's here today, is he? Uh, but we, it was at an old Unitarian church in the city, which is a weird place to see a concert, but we were sitting on the, these old creaky pews uh, throughout the night. But anyway, we took our seats, and I sit down, and there was a wallet sitting next to me on the pew. So I grabbed it, and Aaron and I are kind of looking around to see if, who it might belong to, but uh, there didn't seem like there was anybody looking for it. So we start kind of opening it up to see if we could find an ID or anything that we could use to identify who it belonged to so we could try to get it back to him. 
he didn't have a driver's license. There was some credit cards and business cards that had his name on it, and so we typed them into social media just to see what would come up, but apparently, I guess it was a pretty common Vietnamese name, so it yielded no results. So I didn't really know what to do that night, so I just took it with me, um, and I thought I would try to find him uh, over the weekend. And long story short, I ended up finding his Instagram account uh, the next day, and it turns out uh, he was a Vietnamese student who was a freshman in college, 18 years old, attending Lehigh University, just starting his, his college career. And he was down in the city checking out this concert for the weekend when he loses his wallet. And it had $500 in cash in it. And so no doubt he was having a pretty rough weekend. He was no doubt stressed about it, wondering how on earth he could lose his wallet like this. So I sent him a message and let him know, hey man, I found your wallet. And he finally saw it a couple days later, he was overjoyed. He was so excited that I had found his wallet. So I sent, sent it back to him the next day and he got it and uh, he messaged me again and he couldn't thank me enough for giving him his wallet back. Same thing happened to me a couple years ago. I was at the King of Prussia Mall uh, in a dressing room trying on some jeans and I left a few minutes later and checked my pocket and my wallet was gone. And I'm stressing out about it, getting super nervous, uh, but I retraced my steps and sure enough, it was just sitting in the dressing room right there. What sweet relief it is when you find something that you've lost, right? Like we've all been there. It's like, ah, it's like this huge weight has been lifted off our chest. We find something that has been missing and you just take a big breath and go, all right, I don't have to worry about that anymore. And you can find great joy in that. But in these cases, the items that we lose don't willfully lose themselves. The wallet didn't walk out of my pocket of his own volition. The wallet didn't walk out on me in defiance of my ownership of him. The wallet didn't insult me on the way out. The wallet didn't steal from me and then waste all of my money. The wallet didn't spit in my face and wish I was dead. But what if the wallet did? I know it's silly to think about an inanimate object doing that, but would I still be so excited at the return of my wallet under those circumstances? That's what makes this story so incredibly powerful. It's different than the two previous parables that Jesus tells of the lost sheep and the lost coin. The sheep wandered away innocently, and the coin was lost accidentally, just like my wallet. But this parable starts with a son who is willfully walking away from his father in downright defiance. A son who insults his father and essentially slaps him in the face with his request. A son who is determined to leave and waste everything that his father had worked for so that he could have a few cheap thrills. So for our first point this morning, we want to look at the father's love toward the prodigal son. Verse 11, Jesus said there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. So he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. So right away, we're introduced to three characters. A father who has two sons. The younger son was quite frankly fed up and sick of living in his father's house. He was probably sick of the monotony of the work that he had to do. And he determined he wasn't going li to let life pass him by anymore. He wanted to explore the world. So he asks, or rather I should say demands, his share of the inheritance. 
which according to the Mosaic law in Deuteronomy 21, uh, the younger son would have been entitled to a third of that, and the older son would have gotten two-thirds of the inheritance. And this would have been divided up um, amongst the brothers after the father died, because you can't just like chop a house in thirds and then like separate it to the guys that way. Like it would have had, all of his assets would have had to have been liquidated and sold so that all the money that comes in could then be evenly divided amongst the brothers. So for the son to demand this right now is essentially saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me all the money that's coming to me right now. It's not, it's not even like the son like asks nicely or kind of like request, like he just demands it. Like I always beat around the bush when I'm like making any ask of anybody. I'm just kind of like, hey, like if it's not too much trouble, like could you maybe like, can I trouble you for like a glass of water? Like it's, it's, not, it's not a big deal. Like don't worry about it. I'm sorry I bothered you. Like he just like, he just comes in. He's like, dad, give me all your money. He's like the John Dillinger of biblical characters. He's irreparably damaging his relationship with his father. So it seems. Not only does the son demand all this money, but then verse 13, not many days later, he didn't wait long, the younger son gathered all that he had, all this new money that he had accumulated, and he took a journey into a far country. And it was there that he squandered his property in reckless living. So he takes all this new money that he's just been given, really that he's just stolen. And he gets as far away from home as he possibly can. He wanted all that his dad had worked to give him. And then he wanted absolutely nothing to do with him ever again. So he travels to a far country and seeks to establish for himself a new identity. One where he's in charge and he can do whatever he wants with his life. Now this kind of living is going to rear its ugly head eventually. It might be fun for a while. It might seem like it's hurting no one. But it always leads on a path towards destruction. And we see that in the story. It continues in verse 14. When he had spent everything, it was all gone. A severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So the son has just spent everything that his father's given him for a few cheap thrills. Sin has devastated this young man. He has hit rock bottom. Because sin always overpromises and underdelivers. I highly doubt the younger son had this in mind when he demanded his inheritance and moved out of the country. I'm sure he thought his life would be nothing but parties and joy and celebration and fun and pleasure. And now here he is living with pigs, wishing he was one of them that at least he could have something to eat. He thought he would find himself, but instead he loses himself. He is on the verge of starvation, and he has no one to blame but himself. He's at the end of his rope before he finally realizes what needs to be done. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, he's finally coming to his senses. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. The young son finally comes to his senses, 
he comes to the realization of how grievously he has sinned. And what does he think about? He thinks about his dad. He thinks about not only how good his dad was to him and his brother, he thinks about how good his dad was to the servants that he that worked. That's where his mind goes at, at his worst. He thinks the goodness of his father. And he decides that he needs to do something about it. He doesn't just wallow in remorse or self-pity. He says, I have to go home. Not totally knowing how the father's going to respond to him, but he trusts in his goodness because he remembers how good his dad was. He says, I will arise and go to my father. Because it's the loving kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. It's not his severity or his wrath, or his anger. He does discipline his children when necessary. But at the end of the day, the Lord is patient, he is kind. If you still have breath in your lungs, there is still time to run back to him. Verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us sell it. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. They began to celebrate. This young man has disgraced his family insulted his father, ruined their property and wealth, wasted all of that money. He comes home ready to give this little speech that he's prepared, but before he even gets a word in, his father sees him. His father has apparently been waiting. The father runs to him. The father embraces him. The father kisses him. For all the father knows, he could be coming back to ask for more money. But the father runs after him. Running would have been highly undignified for an older man in this culture, yet that's exactly what he does. Laying aside all conventions, not caring what anybody would think of this, he warmly welcomes home his son. And as the father is showering his son with love and affection, the young man begins to go through this speech that he's prepared. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And before he can even get to the point where he's asking to be treated as one of the hired servants, the father doesn't even acknowledge it, and he just turns and starts barking out orders for the hired servants to start planning a party. He goes, Lay, let's go, let's go guys. Like, bring the best robe, which would have been his own robe, Let's get him a ring on his finger. Let's get some new shoes on his feet. Let's kill that fattened calf that we've been saving. Let's have a celebration tonight. The father sees his son's humility, and he freely offers his total and complete forgiveness. He didn't even need to hear his son's speech. There were no conditions added to his forgiveness. The father doesn't say, son, you've got a lot to make up for here, which would have been totally right for him to do so, like a totally reasonable thing. He doesn't talk about how hurt he was by his son's actions. He doesn't bring up his sin at all. He just starts making plans for a party 
with the guest of honor being this foolish and disobedient son. A disgraced son, showered with the father's grace. An unlovable son, being given nothing but love. Everything the son was seeking in that far off country, he receives back home. He sought the joys, pleasures, and celebrations when he left home and spent all of his money, but only received grief, starvation, and near death. But upon returning home, he was given all that he could have ever dreamed of. The father lavishes his love upon his son in an act of complete and total unconditional love. This is the heart of God. He is a father who loves his children. He is a father who loves to give his children good things. If you're here this morning and you find yourself resonating with the younger son at all, perhaps you've rebelled in your life either in the past or you're still rebelling now. Maybe in the way that you spend your money or the way you spend your time or the way you speak to your spouse. Maybe you're stuck in a pattern of habitual sin that you can't seem to get a hold of in your life. Maybe when the stress of, of life comes upon you, you cope with things in unhealthy ways. You don't run to God. Maybe you run to entertainment, television, or the internet, guys, or alcohol, or shopping. Any number of things that you use to relieve your pain except going to God. If you feel that at all in your life right now, think of how gracious God has been to you already in your life. Just like the younger son sitting in the pig slop, think about how good God is. He doesn't deal with you severely. He deals with you with the love of a father who's standing outside the gates watching for you to come home. And at the first sight of you, he runs to you. He pursues you in the midst of your sin and brokenness. He will embrace you. He will love you. That is the father's love toward the prodigal son. There's another son in the story, so let's take a look at the father's love toward the proud son. Point number two, the father's love toward the proud son. Verse 25, now his older son was in the fields, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. So here we are, we find the older son, he's in the field, he's probably been working all day, just like he always does. He knows that his inheritance is coming, and he's certainly not going to do anything to mess that up, like his brother did. So he labors and labors, works and works. He is a hard worker, no doubt, which is absolutely commendable. But we soon find out that there is a lot more darkness in his heart than meets the eye. So he's wrapping up his long day of work in the field. He starts walking back to the house, and he hears music and can see dancing and joy, and there's a celebration going on. And I think he knows exactly what's happening because he doesn't go in and find out for himself because he wants nothing to do with that. 
So he asks one of the hired servants what's going on to confirm his suspicions. He thinks, I'm, I think I know what's happening. My, my brother came home. And he wasn't happy about it. It reminds me a lot of, of Jonah. Remember, uh, so God calls Jonah to go preach to Nineveh. He obviously runs away, but then the Lord brings him back. And he reluctantly goes and does what the Lord asks him to do. The Ninevites all repent and find forgiveness from the Lord. <laughs> After this happens, Jonah is still mad. And he goes, <laughs> the Lord confronts him and he goes, I knew that you were a gracious God. I knew that this was going to happen, which is why I didn't want to do it. I knew you were going to forgive them. He's angry about how gracious God is. And I think that's exactly what the older brother's doing here. He knows that his father has forgiven his younger brother, and he hates it. So upon hearing the news that his brother has indeed come home, the hired servant confirms his suspicions. The older son seethes with anger. He hates his brother, and he hates that he's back. And I think he hates his father for welcoming him back. This feels like a massive slap in the face to him. How could the father throw a party for such a reckless and unhinged son while I've been laboring day after day? Doesn't he know how much I do for this family? He should be throwing this party for me. Filled with pride and self-righteousness and self-pity, he cannot see what the father sees. He doesn't understand love. He doesn't understand grace. He only understands he thinks that all of his hard work would be enough to earn his father's love. And his father welcoming this reckless son back into the family after all he did to destroy it makes no sense to him. What have I been doing laboring for all these years? After, after all, what's the point? And Jesus is targeting a very specific group of people with this part of the story. Because the Pharisees are sitting right there listening to him. And they too, they were seething with anger at how Jesus was treating sinners. They cannot believe that Jesus welcomes these outcasts and sinners to hang out and eat with him. They've been following the rules their whole lives. Why isn't he giving them more attention? They have no glaring or grievous sin in their lives. Yet they are as far away from God as the younger brother was when he was out living in his field. Jesus is flipping people's expectations of God's kingdom upside down. I once heard a pastor say it like this, the good news of the gospel is not that good people get good stuff. It's not that life is cyclical and that what goes around comes around. Rather, it's that the bad get the best. It's that the worst inherit the wealth. It's that the slave becomes the son. And we see this being played out right before our very eyes in this parable. Because we have a reckless and wicked son who's done everything wrong and he's given all the riches he could have ever dreamed of. The older son can't comprehend this because he thinks he deserves the riches. He doesn't think he's ever done anything wrong. The problem is his sins are much more inconspicuous than those of his brothers. His brother knows he messed up. It's readily apparent to all who see it. And his brother demonstrates humility as a result of that. Humility is a defining trait of a sinner who's ready to be saved by grace. Whereas the older brother, he demonstrates pride. That's a defining trait of somebody who still doesn't get it. Somebody who's still alienated from God. So on the surface, the older brother, he looks pretty good. 
all things considered, certainly compared to his younger brother. He works hard and doesn't have any glaring sins, but it actually puts him in a position of entitlement. The younger brother knew he was separated from his father. The older brother does not. The older brother is just as lost as the younger brother was, but he's way too proud to see it. Verse 28 continues the story. His father came out, left the party, and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, he doesn't even call him his brother, when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? The father said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost. The father continues to pursue. First, he ran to the disgraced son, and now he's leaving the party to go talk to the older son. The father never stops pursuing his sons. He earnestly desires both of them to be restored to fellowship with him. So he leaves the party to go talk to the older brother, who then continues the trend of disrespecting and insulting this loving and gracious father. The boy says to his dad, look, I've never disobeyed you, and this is what I get? This son of yours wastes all your money, you throw him this party? How dare you? The father only demonstrates love and affection. There's so much tenderness in the father's response to the older son here. You can just hear the tonal shift just when you read these words. He says, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost in his family. So the father reiterates his love for the older son here. He acknowledges that he's always with him. He's never going to leave him. He then makes a plea for his son to try to understand why the celebration was necessary. His brother was dead, but he's alive. The father is gently and lovingly, but firmly confronting the older brother's notion of love. To this point, the older brother's notion of love was based entirely on works. He says, if I do this for you, you must love me in return. The two great commandments that Jesus gives us are, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Number two, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The older brother is destroying both of these. He's not doing any of it. Because in this parable, the father obviously represents God. And we have the older brother here who is blatantly disrespecting his father. The older brother is doing all of his work for all of the wrong reasons. He's not doing it because he loves his father with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. The older brother's working just to earn his keep and nothing more. He's just counting down the days till his father dies so he can collect what's rightfully his. He's not doing it out of self-sacrificial love. He's working because he's doing it for himself. The older brother's also obviously breaking the second commandment because he displays zero love for his brother. He hates him. Doesn't even consider him his brother anymore as he tells his dad, this son of So when the father welcomes the disobedient son back into fellowship, it provides an opportunity 
for the father to redefine his relationship with the older son as well. It gives the father the opportunity to tell the older son, look, my son, like, all the work you do for me, that's not what makes me love you. Can't you see that? My love is based on something entirely different. My love is entirely contained within myself. My love doesn't change based on what you do for me or what you don't do for me. My love is based on my own goodness. What is your relationship with your heavenly father look like? Do you serve him joyfully because of the great love that he's shown you? Or do you serve him oftentimes out of mere obligation and duty? Do you serve him because you desire a closer walk with him? Or because you expect more blessings in return? Do you serve him with thanksgiving because of all that he's given you in Christ? Or do you serve him sometimes while grumbling, complaining, because you expected more, quite frankly, from God? I think we all have a little bit of older brother in us when it comes to the things that we do for the Lord. We might be serving the Lord faithfully in church, but sometimes we do it out of a mere obligation. But what would our lives look like if we began to serve the Lord out of nothing but love and admiration for him and all that he's done for us? What if you started serving in a ministry that doesn't get a whole lot of attention, doesn't get a whole lot of accolades, and you do it just because you want to honor the Lord with your life? What if you served in a way that nobody even knew about? Like, nobody was ever going to find out about this. But the Lord, the Lord knows. I think about Larry Ivey, our deacon of prayer. One of the things that amazed me about him, one of many things, um, is his diligence week in and week out to go to the nursing home on Fridays at 1 p.m. and spread the good news of Jesus with the elderly and the sick. People who can't give him anything in return. Larry doesn't do it because he expects praise from other people. He never goes around and says, I was at the nursing home and I was doing this and I was doing that. I was sharing the gospel. He just quietly goes and does it week in and week out. He's also probably mad that I'm mentioning this publicly, but alas, that's how it's going to be today, Larry. You do it because you love the Lord, and that is readily apparent. And last week, Pastor Matt laid out some areas in our church, which quite frankly, just we need more bolstering from volunteers. We need more people that are able to shoulder some kingdom responsibility. And so I guess, have you considered at all whether or not the Lord might be calling you to maybe pick up a little bit of slack, perhaps in an area that isn't so glamorous, an area that you might not even get any recognition in, but doing so just because you know that it would serve the Lord and his church. And if you are serving already, that's, that is wonderful. You should keep doing that. But if you have maybe some mixed motivations in that, perhaps it's time to kind of reconsider how uh, you might repent of perhaps a little bit of older brother stuff in your heart, where you're maybe doing it because you expect people to recognize you, or you're doing it because you expect the Lord to bless you some more. You shouldn't stop serving, right? Like you shouldn't just be like, you know what, I'm just going to sit back and wait till my heart's totally right to get involved here. Like that's probably never going to happen. Like this side of heaven, like we're a mixed bag of motives. Uh, so uh, get the servant and just ask the Lord to just be like every time, be like, Lord, I pray that I'd be doing this for the right reasons. I pray that I'd be doing this because I love you, because you love me first, not because I expect anything more from you because you've already given me everything in Christ. 
And there's, a, there's another party coming in the future, just like the one the Father throws for this younger son, that we're all going to be a part of. And I can't wait for that. All right, now Jesus ends this parable before we can see how the older brother responds to his father's plea. I think Jesus intentionally leaves it hanging because he's kind of like giving it to the Pharisees. He's like kind of just laying it at their feet and he goes, all right, what would you do with this? Like, what would your response be to this? Because he's really directing this parable at them. So that's the parable. Those are the two sons, the two different paths that we can take. But there is a third son in the story. He's the one telling the story. So let's look finally at point three, the father's love through the perfect son. We looked at the father's love toward the prodigal son, the father's love toward the proud son, and now we want to see the father's love through the perfect son. Jesus is the reason that we can have access to this father's love. In this particular parable, there's no mention of atonement or sacrifice. It's a simple parable. It's not meant to be a theological dissertation on how salvation works. It's a parable that's meant to just show us God's heart. The older brother in this story thought he was the perfect son. But Jesus is actually the perfect son. The older brother, as we discovered, was just as alienated as the younger brother. And Jesus is the one who, unlike the older brother, unlike the younger brother, Jesus obeyed God perfectly from start to finish in his life. Jesus then suffers. He dies on the cross, bearing the sins of younger brothers everywhere, bearing the sins of older brothers everywhere, taking every bit of punishment that they deserve and paying the penalty that they had incurred. Jesus really died 2,000 years ago. That was not a parable. Jesus atoned for my sin when he bled and died. But then he rose from the grave three days later, securing our salvation forever. The resurrection proves that God was satisfied with this sacrifice and that sinners can now actually be saved. And with simple faith in Christ's sacrificial work, we can be saved. With simple humility, like the younger brother coming home, his head down, his tail between his legs, we acknowledge how desperately we need a Savior. We don't have anything to bring to the table, no works that can earn this for us. We merely say, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling, Lord. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Doesn't say you have to work for it, doesn't say you have to earn it, you merely have to believe it, and you will be saved. It is a promise. There is one way to salvation. It comes through the perfect Son. Our Father in heaven loved us enough to make this salvation possible, and he did it through his Son. We see God's heart in the parable of the two lost sons, and we see God's grace in the person of his son. And if you've never placed your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, like I said earlier, as long as you still have breath in your lungs, it is never too late to do so. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've been. 
and it doesn't matter what you've done. This parable proves that because the younger son did everything wrong and his father welcomed him with open arms. The older son remains steadfast in his pride and self-righteousness, but the father still pours out love to him too. And he provides an opportunity for him to be welcomed home as well. Do you resemble the younger son in your life? Do you run from God every chance you get? Do you make the same mistakes over and over and over again? Come home. Ask God to forgive you of your sins. Lay yourself at the foot of the cross where Jesus paid the debt that you deserve to pay. Throw yourself upon the mercy of God and place your faith in the sacrifice of Jesus for your forgiveness. Come back home. Or do you resemble the older son in your life? Do you check all the boxes of obedience every day? Maybe you read your Bible, you pray, you go to church every week but your heart's grown cold towards the Lord. You're obeying out of mere duty. You need to come home too. Repent of your sins, though not as glaring as the younger brothers. They are just as damning. We all need to come back to God's love over and over and over again, because I think we all resemble both of these sons at different times in our lives. I think we're probably prone to one or the other more often, but I think we all have both in our hearts. But thank God, he demonstrates through this parable that there is grace and there is love for both. The remedy is simple. First Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Humility is the key to understanding God's love properly. In some ways, it's easier for the younger brothers because it's so evident that they need grace. It can be harder for the older brothers because they don't think they need it as much. When we think we deserve God's love, we are in fact demonstrating how much we don't deserve it. But when we acknowledge how much we don't deserve His love and we humble ourselves under His merciful hand, that's when He showers us with abundant love and grace. Father, we thank you for parables like this. We thank you that Jesus came and he lived a perfect life and died the perfect death that can grant us this forgiveness. That also he taught us through things like this parable where we can see so clearly your heart towards sinners. Lord, I've sinned grievously in my life and yet you have forgiven even me. You don't expect or demand anything in return in terms of working to earn anything. You merely say, you are completely and totally forgiven forever. And now as a result, Lord, may we serve and honor you out of a joy for the grace that we've been given, out of a joy for all the love that we didn't deserve, May we give that back to you, Lord, with our own affection towards you. Thank you, God, for all the love you've shown us. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Thank you for listening to this audio from Harvest Bible Chapel, Philadelphia. For more audio, content, and information about our church, visit harvestphiladelphia.org.